I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And of course, the sermon notes from your bulletin will be a help to you as we step into our time in God's Word here today. And as we do that, I would like to remember with you a book that I introduced to you a couple of years ago and make a few comments about it because it will lead us to the text, okay? Uh, Back in 2018, uh, this gentleman named Matthew McCullough wrote a book called Remember Death. How's that for bedtime reading? (laughs) Remember Death. Uh, The intro to this, of course, is by Russell Moore, and this is a really good read. If you know how I read stuff, there are a whole bunch of little flags here, which means I put little notes there saying, that was a good statement. I need to remember that. So I mark those for my future use. But this book is not about death in its dying sense, not about grief and loss, as important of topics as those are. It is about death more as a theological idea, physical reality, certain, certainly, but a, the, the idea of death and the, the moment of death. So less about heaven and hell and judgment, less about the process of approaching death, more about death as an idea. Now, there's a Latin phrase that has made its way down through Christianity. Uh, most of us ignore such things because, I mean, who thinks about this unless they must? But momento mori, uh, Latin words that mean, in a sense, remember death, or specifically, remember yours. Remember your death. Now, a a number of things are covered in this book. Uh, McCullough talks about how death has been viewed by believers over the years. Uh, Not that long ago, he would say that, you ready for this, you'll handle it. He would say that in the last 100, maybe 200 years, death and sex have traded places in our culture. That is, not that many years ago, 100 or two, which isn't many, uh, death is something you talked about with your kids because it was so prevalent. The average life expectancy is so much lower. And honestly, in bringing kids into the world, many of them would die far more than today. One example he gives of this, Russell Moore, uh, he, sorry, he talks, about, he talks about Cotton Mather, uh, McCullough does, uh, Cotton Mather, one of the Puritans of old, who with his wife brought 14 children into the world. A handful of them, half a dozen or so, died before they were two. Several made it into their 20s and died. One out of 14, one survived dad. One. Now, all of that, of course, pre-penicillin, pre-antibiotics. So, so death was more prevalent. But in talking about death and sex switching places, he would say back then, death was something you talked about in polite society. You must. But sex, not so much. And my, how things have changed. So today, sex and sexual topics seem to be everywhere. But death, there's a showstopper of a conversation. Why talk about that? I mean, it's morbid. And, and McCullough would say, no, hold on. Child of God, you need to remember death to live well. Amen. To live well. In a sense, that's what our text is about today 
in 2 Corinthians. I want to read you now, before we get there, all of this, I think, preparing our hearts to hear what the Apostle Paul has to say and to receive it. Uh, There's a quote here from this book that I I want to give you. I wrote it down elsewhere here because I might not be able to find it at this moment with all the little notes here. But he says this, and I found this so helpful. He says, if death is not a problem, Jesus isn't much of a solution. He says, the more deeply we feel death's sting, the more consciously we feel the gospel's healing power. The more carefully we number our days, the more joyfully we will hear that death's days are numbered too. And the more we allow ourselves to grieve the separations that death brings to our lives, the more fully we will long for the world in which he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. So he says, Christian, this really, this is targeted toward those who know Christ, this text is. He says, remember death, specifically remember yours. Now, I want to read you as well a memento mori song. It doesn't use that term. This is from um, the early 90s or thereabouts when I came across it. But I remember this song really well. So this is from Carolyn Ahrens, contemporary Christian uh, artist, songwriter. Uh, Her song goes like this. I know a girl who was schooled in Manhattan. She reads dusty books and learns phrases in Latin. She's an author or maybe a poet, a genius. It's just that this world doesn't know it. She works on her novel most every day. If you laugh, she will say, here's the refrain, seize the day. Seize whatever you can because life slips away just like hourglass sand. Seize the day. Pray for grace from God's hand. Then nothing will stand in your way. Seize the day. Verse 2. I know a doctor, a fine young physician, left a six-figure job for a mission position. He's healing the sick in an African village. He works in the dirt and writes home to the cynics. He says, we work through the night. So most every day as we watch the sunrise, we will say, Seize the day. Seize whatever you can, because life slips away just like hourglass sand. Seize the day. Pray for grace from God's hand. Then nothing will stand in your way. Seize the day. I know a man who's been doing some thinking. He's as bitter and cold as the whiskey he's drinking. He's talking about fear, about chances not taken. If you listen to him, you can hear his heart breaking. He says, one day you're a boy. The next day you're dead. I wish way back when someone had said, seize the day. Seize whatever you can, because life slips away just like hourglass sand. Seize the day. Pray for grace from God's hand, then nothing will stand in your way. Seize the day. As I mulled over that song um, 30-some years ago, uh, it prompted me to buy one of these for my desk. And it's been on my desk for over 30 years. Memento Mori. Now, lest you think this is an hourglass, I want you to know it's a 43-minute glass, because I've checked. (laughs) I was robbed. Uh, I'm guessing on the day that they made it, they were running out of sand. Or maybe they were wanting to send a message. It's going quicker than you think. (laughs) But if you visit my office, yes, you'll see this. It has has been on my desk for for that amount of time, three decades at least, and perhaps by God's grace for a few more. But it's a reminder to me. Life slips away 
like an hourglass sand. Yours too. And that's why you need this text. I'm going to put this down. I was told I needed to finish my sermon before that. We'll see about that. I'd like to pray for us that God will help us in his word. Our Father, uh, many other things we maybe would prefer to talk about other than death. But this is sure, uh, unless Christ returns in our lifetime, death's door is one that we will all walk through. And I pray that even now today as we come to this text, this is what you want us to know about this topic. Would you help us? Help us to set aside the awkwardnesses of this, perhaps. Uh, Pray for those for whom dealing with death is so real and so raw because they have recently lost a loved one. Uh, Pray your help for them and encouragement. But as we think about this concept, this theological idea of death, would you help us to understand this text and the others we'll look at? Uh, we, we, We invite your work now in Jesus' name. Amen. So on your sermon notes, you'll see a few elements of review. As always, we'll let you take a look at those. And I think I've said everything I would have written here under today's text. So we'll go right to the things that follow. As I look at the 10 verses that we'll read in a moment, I see them fitting into three categories. Verses 1 to 5 really form the the, the main theological argument and explanation. Verses 6 to 8 talk about a response to this, one type of response for today, for here. And then verses 9 and 10 talk about another kind of response. So really a a main idea, five verses about that, and then what do we do with that is the way the text breaks down. All right? So I want to read these 10 verses, and then we'll talk about these things uh, very directly. God's Word, then, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. And we read... For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's the main statement. For in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found unclothed or naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, clothed upon, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage, and we know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord... For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. God's word. Oh my. Well, so three headings then, and a number of things I'd like you to think about with me. Uh, First one here then, first movement in verses one to five, I have under the heading, death for the believer is the beginning of life. And I put that, the word life in caps to try to capture what Paul is, is saying at the end of verse four, because we tend to think about this as life now, And then as death and like it's all over. 
And this text is pressing back against this. Again, it's written to the child of God. You trust in Christ as your Savior. There are certain things that are absolutely true for you. So he's saying, no, no, we've got it backwards. No, death for the believer is the beginning of life, not just the result of its end here. The beginning of life. I put it in caps to try to grab verse 4. Now, to to, to think about this in detail. Verse 1 You'll notice Paul uses three metaphors for our our bodies. He says if the tent, that's like a a temporary dwelling, a pup tent, if you will, a very, very temporary thing, you, you can stay in it for a short time. If the tent that is our earthly home, there's a second, tent, home, building. If the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed or torn down, it doesn't mean an act of violence necessary, but if it necessarily, but if it's torn down, then... If then, then we have a building from God, a different kind of being, a a dwelling, a house not made with hands, one that is eternal. So the first two, the tent and the home, would refer to this physical body, and the building from God would refer to what we receive in his presence. Okay? Wow. So on your notes then, please press into this with me. Our earthly body is a temporary, though important, dwelling of the soul or spirit. And I emphasize though important here because I'm wanting you to know that in Christian thought, Christian theology, there is not a place for the despising of the physical body. That's pagan thought, not Christian thought. The fact that God has given you this body to inhabit for now, okay? And the fact that this is temporary does not mean it is worthless or careless. We are right to esteem and value and protect the physical body God has given us. And even in a moment of death, when a person near us has died, to honor the body. That is, that is a Christian thing, okay? Not to despise it. Not to be too careless, like, ah, it doesn't matter, they left. No, hold on. That, that physical body is how we have known that person. It's where they lived for the time that they were here. So it is right, it is Christian to, to, to treat the physical body with respect. All right? I, I press back on that because it, it, you can go down through the history of pagan thought and you can see the despising of the body. Like the human body is something that's good to flee from. Get out of it as quickly as you can. It'd be a wonderful thing to get rid of. No, hold on. No, that's pagan thought, not Christian Uh, The idea here of groaning, interesting, verse 2, in this tent, in this temporary dwelling, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Wow. Well, not only is death uh, awkward to talk about, naked is awkward to talk about in polite conversation as well. You're afraid of death and all the dreams about walking down the sidewalk. That's not what's going on here, okay? The idea is, verse 3, by putting on this heavenly dwelling, we're not going to be found unclothed. Nobody's wishing, most people wishing, to flee this body. You're not wishing just to, to get rid of this body. It's not a death wish. Most people would not say they have a death wish. But I, rather this is saying, I'm wanting to be further clothed upon by a heavenly body, a heavenly place. Now, several things I want to just press into. This, this tent, this Verse 1, this earthly home. All of us have an experience of an earthly home and how temporary they are. I think it'd be a very rare person in this room who is still living in the home in which they were raised. I'm betting nobody. Uh, It could be. 
But most people don't. Most of us move from one place to another. And most of us, track with me here, most of us have had that experience of moving out where you've got all your stuff, things are off the walls, and there's a moment. Depending on how long you've lived there, some places you're going, good riddance. But I don't mean that. But for many of us, there's a leaving where you stop and before you shut the door one final time, you look around and say, okay. And you shut it. I remember, I remember this, um, that moment with my parents' house, not when I moved away, but after I was done cleaning it out. You know, it's the place I was raised. There's always been somebody there. And now the walls are clear, the furniture's out. I've been through it. It's been sold. And I know I'm going to shut the door one final time. All the memories here. I can picture, I can picture, I can picture. Jumping off, ooh, that was bad. All the memories that shout to you. And you shut the door. It's almost like a death, isn't it? It's a saying, this place used to be filled with life. So much took place. But today we're shutting the curtains, closing the door. It's very much like a death. It's a very fitting uh, metaphor here for our physical body. If the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a a, a place to move into, so to speak. No, we don't want to be in this intermediate state for long. We want to be further clothed upon now, verse, verse 4, we get this idea along with verse 2. Groaning is mentioned in both, both verse 2 and verse 4. In this tent, we groan, being burdened. Yeah, we do, don't we? This is very similar, and I gave you the reference here, very similar in thought to Romans 8, 22 to 23, where same writer, the Apostle Paul, talks about kind of the same thing. Creation itself is groaning under the weightiness of this broken world, this brokenness, sin that has infected the world and affected us. So the creation itself groans, longing for the day that it'll be set free from its bondage to corruption, Romans 8. And, Paul says, not only creation groans, but we groan. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, he says, we groan within ourselves, waiting for the day when we are set free from bondage to corruption as well, from our sinful struggles and the grief and loss that's here that attends to this life. So there's a groaning in creation, there's a groaning in us. And Paul references that in Romans 8, and he references it here too. Very real, very real. Now, I, I, I want to say, as you look at my third bullet point here, a, a couple of things that attend this conversation. I'm wanting to remind us it's right that we want to live as long as God gives us life. It's right that we want to live as long as God gives us life. That is, don't check out early. You have no right to do so. I'm well aware of the things we struggle with and the thoughts that crowd in in times of discouragement, depression, or other things. Well aware. No, but you have no right to take early what God intended you to to inhabit. You do not have the right to take anyone else's life, nor your own. And it's right that we want to live as long as God gives us life. Now, you'll notice, of course, the text that we haven't addressed yet, but we will. He says in verse 8, we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. You see that? Very similar to what he says in Philippians 1. I've given you the reference here for your continued study. It's right, though, Paul says, "I I want to depart and be with Christ. It's very much better, he says in Philippians 1, but at the same text, in the, in the same text, he says, but to remain here in the body is more necessary for you. In other words, God has me here for a reason. I, I'd rather just say, see you guys and, and go home to be with the Lord, but I know God has me here for a reason, Philippians 1, and I'll stay here as long as God gives me life, and I'll fulfill his purpose for my life until he says you're done. So it's good to want to stay here 
Now, this, this discussion of the body, new body, old body, this is a really big deal, okay? It's represented here in the text. There is a longer representation of that in 1 Corinthians 15. And I've given you the reference here, and I'm going to go there, and I want to read this, this chunk of a text. Uh, there have been those who study theology who would suggest that between 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians 5 that Paul has changed some of his theology. I don't think so. I think this is unified in what it says. But 1 Corinthians 15, often called the resurrection chapter, Paul answers very clear questions about this business of death and resurrection, a new body and physical body. He uses uh, farming as a metaphor. He talks about the sun, moon, and stars, uh, celestial bodies, physical bodies here. A whole lot of analogies, metaphors he uses to help us learn. So I'm going to read this and make just a couple comments, all right, on a significant text. 1 Corinthians 15, I think this is a question from a cynic based on how Paul addresses that person. Okay, so we read 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. That's why I think he's addressing a cynic. You foolish person. Are you kidding me? Well, let me just answer your questions. And he says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So farming here. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, maybe of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he's chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So, in other words, if you plant corn, what grows out of the ground doesn't look at all like what you put into it. There's a little bare kernel you put in the ground. But just wait. Wait till it grows. And what comes from that ground, that little seed, will be far more glorious than what you put in. That's the analogy he's wanting to to, to get here. Physical body, the one that's built for here and a heavenly body, the one that's built for there. So 38 again, uh, uh, verse 39 rather, for not all flesh is the same. There's one for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. You see where he's going here, uh, all the way from farming to animals and and, uh, biology, these things, but now to astronomy, heavenly bodies, earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one kind. The glory of the earthly is another There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star and glory. Here's his point. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. He's trying to teach here. He says it's like that. It's it's like different glories. The resurrection of the dead, what is sown, physical body that has died. You pick it up. What is sown is perishable. What is raised, resurrection body, what is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, and that's a yes, there is. Look in the mirror. That's what it is. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So I, I find verse 43 And verse 44, this back and forth, 42, 43, 44, it's sown this way, it's raised this way. This is very um, evident in the course of life. Death is a humbler of the proud. Okay? And if if, if you, as I at times, are around death, you know that there is a humbling that takes place with the physical body. You're right. It's intended to teach. That is intended to teach. 
It's intended to remind us that the person is no longer there. They're with the Lord if they know Christ as their Savior. It's also intended to say, do you see the weakness here? Do you see the the humanity? Well, guess what? There will be a day (laughs) when that which is mortal will be raised again to glorious life. Okay, much more to think about here. I'm not done. But, but this, this, this is so evident as you live through life and walk near death. Okay, now keep on going. He's going to talk about Adam contrasted with Jesus. The first man, Adam, representing physical, this physical body here, Christ representing spiritual life, future life, resurrection body. He says, thus it is written in verse 45, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. It's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, a man of dust, this body. The second, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. So a contrast, Adam in a physical body made out of dust, Jesus resurrected in power. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's what you looked at this morning in the mirror. Yep, that's what you got. It's a body coming from Adam, made out of dust. He says, if, if, if you born that image and you do, we will also bear the image of the man from heaven, Christ. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does this perishable inherit the imperishable. Short story, this body that you inhabit was made for here. It was made for this planet, this gravity, all the elements here. It was made for here. It was never made to serve you when you're with the Lord. You'll need a different body for that. A far more glorious one, as we'll see in a minute. This body is for here. So death becomes that doorway from this body to then in his glorious presence. So Paul talks about it a lot here. That's the kind of thing he's alluding to in 2 Corinthians 5. I head back that direction now. Uh, on the, that first section there with your, your notes, the fourth bullet point, Paul describes death in some significant ways in verses 4 and 8. Uh, he says in verse 4, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He's describing now as mortal and then as life, capital L-I-F-E is what I gave it as I mentioned, then as life. And then in verse 8, He speaks of being home. We'd rather be away from the body or absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Talking about this with our staff and thinking through the different places where Jesus says different things or Paul. I think this is the only place that uses the term home. You you could correct me on that if you find another one, but I don't think so. Home with the Lord. Jesus said, John 14, I'd go to prepare a place. So a place, a book of Revelation says things differently, but home It's in keeping with what's here, a tent, an earthly home, a body, a building from God, okay, home with the Lord. We are right when we talk about the death of a believer to speak about them being home. And the the idea behind this is permanent, a permanent dwelling, not going to wander again, no need to move again. People say here, uh, it always makes me inwardly chuckle, not at you just at the concept. This is our forever home. May I just say, you want to bet? Either you're going to move or one day we'll carry you out. 
it's not your forever home. I don't care how cool it is. Not at all. Enjoy it. Do you want it to be your forever home? Man, I hope not. God has something far more glorious than where you currently reside. Home with the Lord. Home. Home. He says, death is the beginning of life for the believer. One more little bullet point here. I'm not going to turn to that text, but I give you all these so that you all who are in community groups have a lot of other things to study and think about. Luke 24, 36 to 43 is one of the glimpses at Jesus' resurrection body. It's kind of a fun text. Christ has died on the cross, risen from the dead. He's interacting with his disciples. And you'll remember, initially they were kept from recognizing him, but when they did, they could see that it was really him. They could see it resembled him. They could see it's, it's him. Okay, they recognized him in the breaking of the bread, the scars in his hands. John, we read this in John's gospel. Jesus said, Thomas, you can take a look at the scars. Now, some people, careful of this, extrapolate too much. So we're going to have all the same physical scars in our body. It doesn't say that. It says Jesus did. So be careful about assuming that you're going to have that gimpy left leg just because it's there now. I don't think so. Scars, his scars, yes. I'm not not at all convinced you'll have any, okay? Uh, A glorious new body. Jesus, we're told in Luke 24, he ate a piece of fish. Why did he do that? Well, I don't know, but apparently he could. And it was an instruction, a moment of instruction to say, this body, I'm not a ghost. Watch this. Now, some have extrapolated from that and Jesus' statements about the marriage supper of the lamb and I'm not going to drink of this fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. To, to get the idea that heaven's like a big potluck. There's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. You know the song, big, big yard, we can play football. Okay, I, I, I don't know about all of that. It's not in the Bible. Big, big table, lots and lots of food. I don't know. I'm guessing though, think about this, that Jesus wasn't eating that piece of fish to stay alive. I mean... I mean, he was alive, resurrection body, but I don't think he needed to eat that fish. You can eat not to stay alive. You can eat for fun. Careful, careful, careful. I can't prove all that. I'm just saying Jesus ate a piece of fish, in a sense, to prove he wasn't a ghost. Take a look at this. And he did. He also walked through walls, which is kind of fun. Uh, But be careful what you extrapolate about Jesus' resurrection body. He wasn't a ghost. But it was a very different existence than what we currently have. And I think that was the teaching point. Okay, I want to move to verses 6 to 8. More we could say on all that. Books have been written. Good for you to read. 6 to 8. A robust theology of death produces courage. Okay? Verses 6 and 8 say the same thing. Really, same point. And verse 7 is a reminder that we're not home yet. We walk by faith, not by sight. So Paul says, verse 6, we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. And then uh, verse 8 again, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So I want to think about this with you. Courage, gospel courage. Now, if you look at my notes on this, Courage results from knowing that being home with the Lord is ultimately a good thing. Now, the current grief here notwithstanding, nor am I minimizing current grief here for your loved ones who miss you incredibly. Not minimizing that. I'm saying for the child of God, courage comes from knowing that at death, you'll be with the Lord. Now, often our our fears, to be very direct, often our fears are more about the process of dying, 
aren't they? Will I hurt? Will it be a traumatic thing? Will I be in a car accident or some kind of terrible disease or, or at the hands of another person? Or What will that part be like? Often our fears are wrapped around the process of dying. This text is more saying, okay, not talking about that part, but the moment of death. When, when you breathe your last here, when your heart stops here, child of God, absent from the body, home. Home with the Lord. Home with the Lord. Home. At that moment, your perspective on a lot of things will change. A whole bunch of things on this side that you thought were really important suddenly won't be. Won't matter at all. Things that kept you up nights at that moment won't matter. See, these things are intended to give us perspective today. Now, keep going. My, my notes here. It's something, this, some, this transition from here to there, it's something for which God has prepared us, verse 5, and our safe arrival in God's presence is assured because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we saw last week's, in last week's text. The resurrection of Christ assures your safe arrival in his presence. Okay? Now, this produces gospel courage to live without fear of death. And I want to press on this for a moment. I, I, along with you, did a bit of thinking about this during recent years when uh, pandemic and so on. Not going down the pandemic route, there's really little good about that except this. I remember early on having to make some decisions about this, as you did, but we all had different decisions to make. Early on in the stay home, stay safe when you weren't supposed to go anywhere. Uh, you remember those? You don't go anywhere? Sure. Okay. So during those early times, I remember getting a call from somebody whose loved one was dying without the Lord. Would I come? Oh, no, I can't do that. I'm supposed to stay home and stay safe. Right? I mean, come on. There's a rule about this. You can violate that rule. There's government rule. Oh, really? N- no. Do you know there's danger? Of course. Who knows really what the danger is? I mean, you, you, I mean, you're not supposed to. Got it. Are you kidding me? Of course you go. And you lean in to talk to this person. That's what you do. And you touch them. This could be dangerous. Gospel courage says, get over it. Child of God, what, do you think you're staying forever? Now, I don't mean careless. That's what I'm, this is balance I'm trying to get here. I'm trying to press on the dynamic tension here between gospel courage and, well, cowardice. Do you think you're staying forever? Unless Jesus comes in your lifetime, all of us will walk through the doorway of death. 100%. And I have other good news for you. <laughs> According to Psalm 139, a text I give you down under the responding part, David assures us in that psalm that before you were born, the days were marked out for you. In other words, you can't leave early. Really, if you're a Christian, before you had one day, God had marked out for you their number. Now, that doesn't mean carelessness like Groundhog Day. Step in front of the bus. It can't hit me. I'm not supposed to die. It does not mean careless. And that's why I put it here. Yes, put on your seatbelt. Yes, wash your hands. I got the memo. However, don't live in fear. Don't live in fear. 
That's one of the things I pressed back on myself internally during all of those days of be afraid, be afraid. I said in my own gut, absolutely not. You can convince me to do things a lot of different ways, but don't you try playing the fear card on me. The worst you can do is kill me. And I'm with the Lord. So, so don't try the whole, oh, no, but you might die thing. I know that. And I promise you, unless Jesus comes, I will. I will. As will you. But I surely do not want to be found hiding under my bed when Jesus comes for me. No, uh, not going to happen. No, don't, don't try the scare me with death thing. It's interesting. McCullough gives a lot of examples here. Of, you, you want to talk about real death? Uh, pre-penicillin, pre-all kinds of medicine things. Uh, as I mentioned with Cotton Mather, 13 of his 14 children all died before he did, most of them very young. Uh, things that today we just go to urgent care and they give us a little bottle of something, it, we don't even think about it. 100 years ago could have killed your child and maybe your whole family. Um, examples all through history. Villages either completely wiped out or half due to some illness that spreads. The flu, like right now. Well, you go to the doctor, you get this. You don't even think about it. 100 years ago? Oh, try that. No, we, we are, live a very safe existence. And may I say, in my opinion, and it's my opinion, I'm not saying this on the authority of the word of God. I'm saying, in my opinion, safety has become an idolatry in today's generation. I, I really do fear that. I'm not, again, don't hear me say the opposite. I didn't say careless living. I didn't say that. But I, I, I said safety. I must, I must, I must not be in any way unsafe. People say today, I'm picking on something. I want everybody to feel safe. Every time I hear that, I kind of cringe inside. Because I don't want to just feel safe. I want to know that I am. There's a difference between perception of safety and really being safe. I want to know if I am or I'm not. Not how I feel. But our whole world says, do you feel safe? Well, good. The place might be full of carcinogens and might be a leaky gas pipe, but as long as you feel safe, then we're good. How? Okay. (sighs) Thank you for listening to that. Hebrews 2 talks about this, about your inheritance as a Christian. I gave you the text, Hebrews 2. It says this, talking about Jesus. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. He conquered death. That is the devil. And deliver those, he says, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He, he equates fear of death with slavery. It'll run your life. It'll run your life. It'll run your life. Fear of death can run your life. The point of the text, I think, is don't let it. Don't let fear of death run your life. Child of God, you were made for better. So don't let fear of death run your life. Don't let fear of death control your choices about what you will and will not do. Verses 9 and 10, then go one further step. So then, whether we're at home, that is in this body, or away, that is with the Lord, we make it our aim to please him. That's our goal. Our goal is to please him. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or ill. I'll treat that in two minutes. My goodness sakes, it's a huge topic, but a couple of things. The ultimate goal of the believer is not to fulfill your bucket list, grab all the gusto, or certainly to avoid all risk. If that's the case, all of our missionaries, all our global partners should come home immediately. It's not safe where they are. They might get diseases. They might die of malaria. All kinds of, their airplane might go down. 101 ways they could get hurt over there. They should all come home now 
And by the way, you should stay home too. Don't change light bulbs. Stay off of ladders. You might fall and hurt yourself. Stay in bed. Well, no, a lot of people die in bed too. That's not safe. I don't know where you're supposed to go that's safe. Huh. Earthquakes. Tsunamis. Other diseases. How do you feel today? No, no, that's not the goal. Verse 9, we make it our aim to please him. That's our goal, to please him, to please him, to please him. For, he says, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, as you study the book of uh, the whole Bible and think about judgments and so on, several things I just want to underscore for you. The judgment seat, or as some of you would know from other study, the Bema seat or the Bema seat, uh, this is a reference to like a Roman, Roman tribunal, uh, uh, an elevated place where a judgment was rendered. This is not judgment, please hear this, for your sin. When you, when you step into eternity, there will not be a big TV screen where God plays all your screw-ups in embarrassing moments and then says, good night, and everybody's watching. No, your sin was judged at the cross, at the end of which Jesus said, it is finished. All judgment was done on, the, on your sin there. My best understanding of this, which we could go into at some length, is that this is, a, this is a judgment that involves evaluation with the result being reward or loss, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, where he's talking about the same thing, I believe. If a believer does certain things, uh, and it'll be tried by fire, wood, hay, and stubble, burns up, poof, That person will still be saved, yet so is through fire, it says. But you want to have the gold, silver, and precious stones. I think it's talking about the same thing. I see this as a judgment of evaluation. In other words, here's the question. So what did you do with what I gave you? Here are the years I gave you. Here's the country I had you born in. Here's the size of brain I gave you, big or small. Here are the abilities I gave you. Remember some of the parables, five talents, two talents? Not talking about abilities, talking about money, quantity. God gives different people different things. Did you get a one-gallon thing or a five-gallon thing? What did you do with it is the key issue, not how much you carried. What did you do with what I gave you? I think that's the point of evaluation. And the result is reward or loss. Commendation or, oh, buddy, I had so much more planned for you. So however all of that plays out, this Bema seat, Bema, or Bema, however you, again, your study, uh, judgment seat, this tribunal seat of Christ, um, it's intended to motivate that we would please him. So on that great day, what we have done is not wood, hand stubble. So several things I'm giving you to go on from here. Uh, first of all, Knowing that our lives are in God's hands, he's ordained our days, lets us live with humble confidence. Please read Psalm 139, verse 16, and believe it. Yes, put on your seatbelt, but know that in the sovereign plan of God, you cannot leave a day earlier than he says so, nor can you stay a day longer, okay? Your life is in his hands. Your days are ordained before you were born. That should give you great confidence to live well. Middle element there under the response section. Most important question. All of the things we've said are addressed to people who know Christ as their Savior. I hope that that's you. That you've trusted Christ as the one who paid for your sin, died on a cross, rose from the dead. All of this is addressed 
to people who know Jesus as their Savior. So whether you're in this room or listening elsewhere now or listening later, I hope it would be true of you that you are trusting Christ as your Savior from sin so that when you close your eyes here, and you will, you will, that it will be absent from the body, home with the Lord. Okay? And then I'm just giving you 1 John 2.28. That's where that came from, that final bullet point. 1 John 2.28, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming because your hand is in the wrong cookie jar. (coughs) Things to think about, dear friends. Well, according to this hourglass, I've got two minutes. (laughs) Wow. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray? Father, I thank you so much for each person in this room, those listening elsewhere or listening later. You know us at our best and at our worst. And I pray, our Father, that we would not be paralyzed by fear of death, that we would live with gospel confidence because Jesus conquered death, and because he did, so we shall too. Our Father, thank you for telling us what you did. You didn't have to tell us all this, but you did. I'm really grateful. And our Father, for all of us today, as we head out into another week, uh, living for you, longing to please you, would you help us that this would be a week lived for you? Uh, Pray your blessing on us as we go. We honor you as our King, our God, and our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.